1973, a man named Ernest Becker, he was a psychologist, wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Denial of Death. And in that book, among other things, he, he talks about how the knowledge of death is unique to us as humans, as compared to animals, for example. Animals don't have to worry. It's not that they don't die, but they don't have to worry about the implications of death. Listen to what Becker says. He says, they live and disappear with the same thoughtlessness, a few minutes of fear, instinctual fear, a few seconds of anguish, and it's over. But, and he describes humans, us, to live a whole lifetime with the fate of death haunting one's dreams, and even the most sun-filled days, that's something else. See, Becker describes a burden that we all face. Even though we often try to deny it and ignore it, we know deep down that we are going to die, and that reality clouds even our best days. And Becker believes this is is a burden so heavy it's impossible to bear. He goes on to say, I believe that those who speculate that a full apprehension of man's condition would drive him insane are right, quite literally right. You hear what Becker is saying. If you, if you dwell on the reality of your death, you will go insane. You can't bear it. It's not possible. And so, if you read the, the book, according to Becker, you'll, you'll hear him say that the best way to deal with that reality is to live to ignore it. To live to forget. That's the only way to function normally in this life. And I wonder, do you agree with Becker? Now, if, if you're a Christian, you, you, know, you probably know the school book answer. No, of course not. We have to consider our death. But the way you live your life, do you live in such a way that death is something to be ignored? It's not to be talked about. It's pushed to the side. I think many of us in our culture, myself included, are, are tempted to do that. The problem is that's completely contrary to the Bible. We see it in what we just read in our passage this morning, but we see it all over Scripture. Hebrews 9, for example, verse 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. You will die. That day, you don't know when it is, I don't know when it is, I don't know how it's going to happen, but it is an appointed day. That will come and then we will stand before God in judgment. It's a reality. Not only is this idea of pushing death to the side, ignoring it, contrary to the Bible, it's also a fairly new idea in our world. If we look at ages past, generations before us, we see that death was really more so at the forefront of their minds. Part of this is, a, is a, a, because of God's blessing. If we think of the last 200 years, the, the average age of death 200 years ago was age 40. And because by God's common grace, medical advancements, now the average age of death has doubled in 200 years. It's age 80. That's a, that's a blessing, by the way. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying those things aren't good. We praise God for medical advancements and protections. Not only are we living longer lives, we're living healthier lives. But is there an unintended consequences, consequence? I think there is. We get to push death to the side. We ignore it because we fear it. And that's not what God wants for us. 
What God wants us to see, and we see it all over his word, we see it in our passage this morning, is that for the Christian, the best is yet to come. The fulfillment of God's promises are not so much in this life, though some are, but in the next life, in the doorway into those promises is death. Therefore, death is not something we should fear. Death can't destroy the reality of God's promises that are yet to be fulfilled for us in Christ. And so we see that in our passage this morning. Our, our, uh, just to give you an overview of where you, you, we're headed, it's a short passage and it's, it's actually just a lot of, it seems like a lot of logistical details, doesn't it? You heard it read? It's, it's a transition passage in the book of Genesis. We're moving from the, the narrative of Abraham and Sarah, and we're moving to Isaac and Rebekah. And it seems like we have this in-between chapter 23 buffer that's telling us that someone important has died, and then there's this long, hard-to-understand business transaction about a field, and then Sarah buries his wife. What, what's going on here? Well, there's really three movements in this passage. Verses 1 and 2, we see Sarah dies... And then the the majority of the chapter is devoted to Abraham having this interaction with the Hittites. They live in the promised land about buying a field so that he can bury not just Sarah but future ancestors as well in the promised land. That's the majority of the chapter. And then the chapter after he purchases the field, the chapter ends with Abraham burying Sarah in that plot of land, in that cave. But, you've heard the phrase, the devil is in the details. I'm going to change that a little bit and say the gospel is in the details here. There is so much for us here. And our big idea as we study this passage is this. As God's people, like Abraham, we live in the face of death by faith and hope in future grace promised to us. Let me say that again. As God's people, we live in the face of death in faith and hope in God's future grace promised to us. So we're going to walk through that in three movements. First, we're going to see the morning of death in verses 1 and 2. Second, we're going to see a purchase in faith, verses 3 through 16. And then lastly, we're going to see a burial in hope, verses 17 through 20. And our goal, what I believe God has for us this morning, is that we would look the reality of death in the face, but not fear it, but because of Christ, look with hope and faith. That the best is yet to come. Okay, so let's begin. Number one, a morning of death. Look again at verses one and two. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So Sarah has died. And any time we, we uh, see a death of really anyone we love, but also of a saint in, in scriptures, it's really cause for us to pause and consider uh, the faithfulness of their life, isn't it? Tomorrow is Memorial Day. What are we doing on Memorial Day? We are pausing. Most of us, we're actually thinking about what, where we're going to go to a cookout, but we're, what we're supposed to be doing is pausing and remembering those who have given the ultimate sacrifice of their lives in armed services for our freedoms, right? We're to pause and consider those things. And so let's do that for a moment with Sarah. Psalm 116.15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And Sarah was a faithful saint. She lived a long life, which indicates blessing, 127 years. She lived a life of faith, and if there's anything we've learned in the book of Genesis, 
It's not to equate a life of faith with perfection, is it? She had ups and downs. She had successes and failures and victories and defeats and sorrows and joys, but she trusted the Lord. Think of of her struggles in which she trusted the Lord. She was barren for most of her life, yet she trusted the Lord. She she experienced sin struggles like the rest of us. We think of the incident with with Hagar where she she stopped trusting the Lord and tried to take matters into her her own hands. She was faithful in a, at times, difficult marriage. Her husband Abraham committed before they even traveled to tell a lie that she was his sister, not his wife, to, to to Pharaoh and to Abimelech and She experienced those sorrows and those pains, but she also experienced many joys. Isaac was given to her in her old age after her womb was literally dead. The miracle child, the son of laughter. Her laughter of sorrow turned to to laughter of joy. She followed God and as Abraham was called on this journey. And she was rock solid in her commitment and faithfulness to Abraham. In fact, Peter holds her up in 1 Peter chapter 3, calls her a holy woman of the past. He holds her up as an example for young wives to follow. She was a woman of faith and now she has died. And notice how matter of fact Moses says it. She lived and she died. And this is meant to remind us, friends, of the reality of death We take a a zoom lens out of Genesis 23 for a moment and we remember what has already happened. This is not the first time we've seen death in Genesis. Draws us back to chapter 3 when sin enters the world. The curse of sin is death. See, we're tempted when we we hear that someone has died to say, well, that's natural. And if by natural we mean uh, it's a shared common experience, yes. But friends, death is not natural. It is not the way God intended it to be. So anytime we face the reality of death in scripture, we're meant to to consider that truth. Death is an intruder. God created man to be in perfect fellowship for life with him. But what happened in Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve ignored God's command. Even though they knew if they ate of the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. They, They ceased to believe God's promises. They were led astray by the serpent. They disobeyed, they ate the fruit, and sin entered the world. And God tells Adam in Genesis 3.17, From the dust you came to dust, you shall return. Because death, this unnatural intruder, this result of sin, is something we all share. Anytime we see death, it's cause for mourning. Which is what Abraham does here. If there's anyone you think uh, wouldn't need to mourn in the face of death, it would be Jesus, right? Right? But consider the story of Lazarus in the, in the Gospel of John. His friend has died. And he goes, and it, this is Jesus, by the way. He knows what he's going to do. He knows he's going to speak and life is going to come out of the grave. But what does Jesus do as he stops and considers the reality of Lazarus in the tomb? He weeps. He mourns. Not because he's powerless over death, but because he considers the devastating effects of what happened in Genesis 3 on his creation. He weeps because this is not the way it's meant to be. See, friends, we we tend to soften the reality of death with euphemisms. 
Do you hear what Moses doesn't say? He doesn't say, Sarah lived 127 years and then she passed away. Or she went on to a better place. Or she is no longer with us. No, she died. And death is a result of the fall. It is an intruder and it is always cause for mourning. Whenever we see it. And we see more so the reason to mourn for Abraham. Because this was his wife. And so as we read on, what does he do? He mourns and he weeps. The language here describing Abraham's brokenheartedness is this audible wailing. Picture him by her side. We don't know why uh, she died. We don't know what the cause is. The text seems to maybe indicate some commentators think Abraham was away. But whatever it is, he comes in, he is by her side, and he is wailing and weeping and mourning over the death of his wife. It's my chapstick. I'll put that back in my pocket. He's heartbroken. And consider, consider this. They've been married longer than any of us would be alive. Unless you make it to about 107. Just, we don't know when they got married. Say, for example, they got married when Sarah was 20 years old. 107-year marriage. All of those ups and downs, all of those sorrows and victories were done together. But now, the lifelong one flesh union has been severed by death and Abraham's brokenhearted. We we use uh, these sort of illustrations for anniversaries. Have you heard of this? The 50th anniversary, does anyone know what that is? The golden anniversary? And then, and then the, the 60th is diamond, and then you get platinum at 70. And guess where it stops? 80. That's it. And that's the oak tree. Now, what, what would happen if, if uh, they were celebrating an anniversary? What would it be? A, a California redwood, right? A, a giant tree that has withstood the storms for 107 years. Those trees are older than that, but right? You get the idea. And it's cut down. Before Abraham. He is heartbroken, so he is mourning his death. Now, what's the application for us here? It seems very simple. A man has lost his wife, she has died. I think the application for us is very simple as well. Remember death. We are to remember death every day of our lives. This is actually a a practice that's common throughout church history. There's a phrase, a Latin phrase, memento mori, which means remember death. If you were to go to the uh, old granary burial ground on the Freedom Trail, I'm sure you've been there before, downtown if you've done that, you will see, it's one of the oldest um, graveyards in Massachusetts, you will see on some of these headstones, not just the name of the person who died, where they're from and, and how long they lived, you will see carved at the top a creepy looking skull and the phrase memento mori on top. Why? Because it wasn't just a marker to let you know who died and who laid there. It was also a reminder to everyone around that you will one day face the same fate. Memento mori. Remember death. There's a famous painting of the theologian Jerome, the 4th century theologian, called Jerome in his study. And he's on his desk and his papers are out and his books are there and he's writing. And sitting on his desk is a human skull. This was common of theologians and, and pastors and in ages past. So if you're looking for a gift for me, by the way, not a real one, but a replica skull for my desk would be great. Now, you hear that behavior and you think that's kind of strange, isn't it? That sounds like that goth kid in high school who listened to too much Black Sabbath. Like, that kid puts skulls on things. That's not really for us. 
But there's biblical warrant behind this. Listen to Psalm 90 verse 12. This is a prayer of the psalmist. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. What is that prayer? Lord, teach me to remember death so that I may become wise. Or think of Ecclesiastes 7 in light of Abraham's mourning. Verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. You hear what he's saying? It's better to go to a funeral than to a feast because when you go to a funeral, you are reminded that you will one day die and you are forced to consider things far more important than what you're thinking about right now. The weighty matters of eternity. So how does, how does memorizing death bring about wisdom? I think there's a, a bunch of ways. Let me just give you two. First, it puts both our problems and our pleasures into perspective. Consider our problems. I was talking to uh, John Tang a couple of months ago, and he was telling me a story about a problem that arose at, at, at his job, at work. And it was such a serious problem that him and his fellow workers had to drop everything they were doing to focus on this one problem. It doesn't mean those other problems in the company and those other tasks weren't important. It means this problem was so important that if we didn't deal with this now, if we didn't devote extra time to considering this now, it's going to affect everything else, right? Or consider the pandemic, Think about how on a worldwide scale we, can, we, we thought we need to solve this problem. We need our best medical minds. We need all of the resources to come together to solve this problem. It doesn't mean the other problems cease to exist, but there is one that we need to put focus on. Remembering death does that for us. Your problem with your career, with that relationship, with whatever it is, it's not that it doesn't matter. But if you don't answer the ultimate question, are you ready for the day of your death when you will stand before God, then all of those other problems don't matter at all. Yet if you're settled on that, if you're confident in Christ on that day, then you are given the strength to endure whatever you face today. It puts our problems in perspective. It also puts our pleasures into perspective. How many things are you and I busying our lives with, trying to find joy in, in the here and now, that will not matter in 10,000 years. Puts our pleasures into perspective. It makes us think, what I'm pursuing now, where I'm pursuing my joy now, is it going to last for eternity? But also, remembering death, it brings the promises of God in Christ into focus. When I moved here from Georgia, I had to get a new license. This was 2015. And I went to go get the license and they said, you have to do an eye test. And I thought, okay, no problem. I didn't wear glasses at the time. And I thought this would be fine. So I take the eye test and I'm like, hey, ma'am, your machine is broken. And she started laughing at me. I'm like, something's wrong with this. I can see the first ones, but the things that are far off, I can't see. It's a little blurry. She's like, the machine's not broken. Your eyes are broken, Right? Well, I didn't think I had a problem. You know why? Because I could see the books in front of me. I could see the conversations I was having. My problem was that I was nearsighted. I could see everything up close, but I did notice when I was driving at night, signs far off in the distance I couldn't see. Here's what happens when we remember death. 
When we ignore death, we are focused on the here and now. We're nearsighted. We're just thinking about today, next week, next year. But when we remember death, what God does is he puts those lenses on. So we're not just seeing the here and now. We're also seeing what's off in the distance. And for those who believe the gospel, what's off in the distance is eternal life with Christ brings those promises into focus. If we forget death, we also forget the one who conquered death. If we remember death, it brings the reality of John 3.16 to our minds. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So friends, we should remember death. It gives us that lens. And I believe this is the lens that Abraham had. This is why he does what he does next. And that leads us to number two. He goes from a mourning of death to a purchase in faith. So there's this purchasing of a burial plot. Look at verse three. And we'll read to verse nine. It says, And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of sight. The Hittites answered, Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of tombs. None of us will withhold from you this tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zoar, that he may give me the cave at Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field for the full price Let him give it to me and in your presence as property for a burying place. Now what's what's going on here? This might seem strange because the custom was if a family member died and you were away from home, which Abraham technically was, he was a sojourner, you would go back to your family of origin for burial. But he doesn't bring Sarah back to Haran. So why is this place so important? Well, remember God's covenant with Abraham. The promise was for among other things, this land. This is the promised land. We saw it in chapter 12, verse 7, chapter 13, uh, twice in chapter 15. We see this summary in chapter 17, verse 8. Listen to what God tells Abraham. And I will give to you, Abraham, and your offspring, after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So what is Abraham doing? He is, he is starting to see this, this promise come to fulfillment by purchasing this little plot of land. And here's what happens in this, this transaction. I just want to summarize it for you because there's a, a lot of um, uh, like business transaction, ancient Canaanite business transaction stuff that we may not understand. So first, Abraham says, verses 3 through 4, I would like land for burial. That's his request to the Hittites, which means sons of Heth, these people living in Canaan. And they say they respect him. They call him a prince of God. They respond with hospitality and they say, you can have the choices of our tombs, verses five and six. Well, Abraham responds and says, actually, I don't, I don't want any sort of gift from you and I don't want just any tomb. I have one in mind. It's the cave of Machpelah. It belongs to Ephron. And the reason Abraham does not want to receive it as a gift, remember chapter 14, something similar happened, is so that nobody can say they made Abraham rich. Abraham wants to say God is the one who gave us this land. 
So he says, thanks but no thanks, I'll buy it, verses 7 through 9. Then he goes to Ephron, and there is this formal, before uh, the people of the city at the city gate, this formal transaction, verses 10 through 16, and Abraham pays the full price for the field. In fact, it's an exorbitant amount, it's likely much higher than what it should be. Essentially, Ephron tries to sell Abraham New Hampshire real estate with Boston prices, right? And Abraham doesn't doesn't negotiate anymore. He pays the price, and we read in verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among other merchants. This is an act of faith and hope for Abraham. He is establishing in the land that God has promised an ancestral burial land that serves as an anchor that binds God's people throughout the rest of the Old Testament to this place. The roots are going down in the promised land. He's living by faith in what God will provide in the future. Do you see that? He's looking at the promise ahead and he's saying, I'm going to act now in light of that promise. He's living as a stranger and a sojourner, verse 4, with his ultimate hope on God and his promises. So he shows us what it means to live by faith in future grace. Now, the Apostle Peter uses similar language. It's actually the Greek translation of this language in chapter 23 to refer to us as sojourners and exiles. 1 Peter 2.11 Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. John 17, Jesus prays for us and he says, They are not of this world just as I am not of this world. But he also prays not that we would be taken out of the world, but that we would be kept from the evil one. God's desire for his people is that they would be in the world looking forward to the future promises of God's grace, and live now in light of what's to come. Now, if you think about this, do you consider yourself a stranger and a sojourner here in this life? I believe so many of our sin struggles flow from forgetting what Abraham is clinging on to here. If you struggle with people-pleasing, do you not recognize, Christian, that you're not supposed to fit in in this world? You don't live for the pleasure of anybody around you, but for God. Maybe you you struggle with loving possessions and, and money and things too much. Do you not know that you have an eternal inheritance awaiting you? You can bring nothing of this with you when you die. Maybe you're, you're tempted to, to escape from discomfort through sinful means, whether it's food or entertainment or overindulgence on whatever it may be. Do you not know? We're not supposed to be comfortable here. We're supposed to live today in light of what's coming. Now, please don't mishear me on this. I'm not saying we're not supposed to enjoy life. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah, God speaks through him and tells those who are exiles in Jeremiah 29 that they're to seek the welfare of the city. He says, have a family. Right? Invest in culture. Be doctors. Be artists. Be entertainers. Live in this life. It's okay to have those things, but those things cannot have you. Do you see the difference? It's a huge difference. And so what Abraham does is he makes this purchase of faith that really makes absolutely no sense. He should have gone back to Haran for the world that's watching. 
He gives a ridiculous amount of money for a burial field. People are probably saying, what is he doing? And friends, that describes our life as strangers and sojourners here. We are to make purchases of faith each day that may not pay off here and now, but they will pay dividends in eternity. And when we come to the New Testament, we see this time and time again. We're not just commanded to live holy lives as his people. We're told that when we live by faith in what's coming, there is actual reward for us. Let me just give you some examples, and I'm going to give you these very quickly because there's nine of them. These are examples of acting by faith in future grace. They're commands to us, but there is attached to them an eternal promise. First, deny yourselves, Matthew 16. Verses 24 through 27, we're told that when we deny ourselves, what do we gain? We gain our very life and our soul. Luke 14, 13 and 14, when we have compassion for the poor and crippled and lame and blind, we're told that we will be repaid in the resurrection. Luke 6, 35, when we love our enemies, there is a heavenly reward for us. 1 Corinthians 4, when we practice faithful and productive stewardship, We are commended by God in eternity. Matthew 19, when we give sacrificially to the poor, we see that our treasure is ultimately in heaven. Hebrews 10, we're told that these group of saints had compassion on those in prison and they endured suffering. Why? Because they knew they had a better possession coming. Matthew 5, we're told to persevere under persecution for righteousness' sake, because when we do, ours is the kingdom of heaven. Romans 2, when we do good works, we receive in eternity glory, honor, and peace. Ephesians 6, when we work as to the Lord, we receive back from the Lord in eternity. Do you see this, friends? When we live by faith, when we, when we think in a way that is, how can I glorify God for eternity? When we are generous, when we deny ourselves, when we persevere in trials, when we do good works, we may not see any reward in this life, but the best is yet to come. And so we are to make those purchases of faith, knowing that future grace is coming to us. And then we see number three, a burial in hope. Before we we go there, though, I want to just sum this up with a resolution from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in New England in the 1700s. He wrote 70 resolutions that he returned to time and time again in his life. And listen to this one. He says, Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, and vigor, and vehemence, yea, holy violence... I'm capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. This is a question for us this morning. Can you say, I am endeavoring to obtain for myself as much happiness, not in this life, but in the world to come? That's what it means to live by faith in future grace. And that's what I believe Abraham's doing here. And let me show you that. Number three, we see this burial of hope. So we come to the end of this chapter. 17 says, The field of Ephron and Mechpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, throughout its whole area, was made over. To Abraham is a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre, In the land of Canaan, the field and the cave that is in it 
were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Notice Moses is repeating the same thing over and over again. He wants you to know where this is. This is in the promised land. He bought it. It's his. It's a burial ground. And what he does here is he establishes a pattern that we see continue to carry on with other burials. Abraham is buried here, Genesis 25. Isaac, Genesis 35. Rebekah, Leah, and Jacob, we're told in Genesis 49 through 50, are buried here. This is an act of faith. He's saying the best is yet to come. Every one of those burials was in hope that God would provide the promised land. There's only one problem if you read through the rest of the Old Testament. Abraham did not receive the promised land. Neither did Jacob, neither did Isaac or Rebekah or Leah. They did not receive the land. In fact, when you see the people eventually receive the land, they don't receive it fully because they fail to drive people out. And when they do get it, they sin against God and they're taken away as exiles. By the time we come to the New Testament, Rome is occupying the land. So then we have this question. We have this Bible problem question. Does that mean Abraham was just practicing wishful thinking? He didn't receive the land. He didn't get the promise. Does that mean that God has failed to keep his promise to his people? And the answer to both of those is no. And this is where we need to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Just a side tip. If you have a question like that in the Bible, the first thing you should ask is, does anywhere else in the Bible help me answer this question? And when we come to Hebrews chapter 11, we see the answer. And oh, it's such an important answer. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. The author of Hebrews tells us about Abraham. He says, These all died in faith, not having received things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Do you hear what Hebrews helps us understand. It was never ultimately about the plot of land. The author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham was desiring not just a space of land in the Middle East. He was desiring a city, a heavenly inheritance in heaven. That is what the promised land points us to. His ultimate hope was in eternity where death would be no more. Where resurrection would defeat sin and death. Jesus tells his disciples and us by way of extension in John 14 2, I go to prepare a place for you. So friends, how was this promise fulfilled? It was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The gospel. Now think about this. In last week, Pastor Clint preached on Genesis chapter 22. And what did we see in Genesis chapter 22? We saw God provide a substitutionary sacrifice The ram caught in the thicket for Abraham so that Isaac would not have to die. God provided a substitute. And then here in chapter 3, we get this hint pointing forward that not only will a substitute be provided to die in our place, but there will also be one who will conquer the grave. 
and defeat sin and death. We have the gospel in miniature here. Christ came, he lived a sinless life, he died the substitutionary death in our place, he was buried, but not in defeat. He was buried in hope, and he rose victorious on the third day, defeating sin and death. You see, in chapter 23, what Abraham is doing by burying Sarah is he is putting a down payment on the promised land. And Hebrews tells us he's putting a down payment on eternity. And what is the burial of Jesus Christ, which happened just 20 miles north of this cave? It is a down payment assuring us that the same God who raised Christ from the dead will raise us to newness of life who believe the gospel. Meaning we do not have to fear death. Death is not the end. We can remember it with hope. We can live now, make purchases of faith now in light of eternity because of Christ. And so as we close, let me encourage each of us to remember death, but not without hope. Listen to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters about those who are dead, asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died, those who have fallen asleep. So we remember death, but not without hope. And we live by faith in future grace as strangers, sojourners, and exiles here, seeking a better country of eternity with him. Let's pray together.